Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, yet another busy show ahead of us. A uh, couple of cards to look ahead to, including a triple header on Showtime. And of course, we'll be uh, unpacking all the action from that tremendous light heavyweight clash on Friday between Artur Betabiev and Alexander Wojtek. Uh, but we generally begin the show with what Eric and I consider to be amusing banter, but there'll be none of that this week. Uh, we had a fair bit of bad news sprinkled throughout the show last week, and Eric, uh, very sad to say some of that news has only gotten worse. Yeah, so certainly so. Uh, so it, it should make sense to all of our listeners why we're skipping the usual frivolous banter uh, and just going right into, uh, unfortunately, beginning the show with some bad news, although by now this isn't likely to be news to anyone who follows the sport closely. On Wednesday, Patrick Day died as a result of the brain injuries he suffered during a knockout loss the previous weekend. In a statement, his promoter, Debella Entertainment, said, On behalf of Patrick's family, team, and those closest to him, we are grateful for the prayers, expressions of support, and outpouring of love for Pat that have been so obvious since his injury. The statement continued, Patrick Day didn't need to box. He came from a good family. He was smart, educated, had good values, and had other avenues available to him to earn a living. He chose to box, knowing the inherent risks that every fighter faces when he or she walks into a boxing ring. Boxing is what Pat loved to do. It's how he inspired people, and it was something that made him feel alive, end quote. This is a tough one. Uh, they're, they're all tough, of course. Mm. But this is not one you can point to and say, well boxing saved his life before right. it ended his life. Uh, he would have been dead or in jail long before this without boxing, etc. You can't say those things about Patrick Day. He came from a middle-class family and was educated. He absolutely didn't need to box. He chose to, which makes clear how much he loved this sport. And you can spin yourself in philosophical circles asking if it's more comforting to know he entered boxing with free will, not because he felt like it was his only option, but... You know, boxing's tragic element doesn't discriminate. It can strike any fighter at any time. Sometimes mistakes are made by commissions and promoters in making mismatches or allowing suspended fighters to fight, and you can see a potential tragedy coming. But other times, the people involved do everything right, mm. and something awful happens anyway. Um, I have to admit, I still haven't watched this fight. I'd heard he was in the hospital before I'd seen the fight, and I just had no desire to watch and the see same, how yeah. it happened. Yeah. So I, I can't comment on any of the handling of the fight or, or anything like that. But from all reports, nobody did anything wrong. The fight didn't need to be stopped prior to the moment at which uh, he took the knockout punch. Um, Patrick Day dying has brought out the usual boxing abolitionists who, mm. even though I'm on the other side of the argument, they're not wrong to say there's no place for this sport in a civil society. Uh, where they might be wrong is in suggesting we live in a civil society. <laughs> um, I also heard some podcasts and read some articles this week with people from boxing, people who work in the industry trying to suggest ways to make the sport safer. Uh, and you can. There, there are things that can be done to make it marginally safer, such as commissions being stricter about medical suspensions, less weight cutting, more testing, more regular MRIs. I mean, look, I'd love to see a percentage taken out of every fighter's purse that's above, say, a million dollars, take a percentage out of those huge purses, and that goes toward 
getting every boxer an annual MRI. Uh, like think of all the MRIs you could pay for with money that instead went to Adrian Broner's jeweler. Uh, so, you know, it tax the very richest boxers to make the sport safer. And, you know, maybe tax the promoters and the networks, too, in, in instances where they put on a pay-per-view that sells like 4.5 million buys. There's money to go around that, that could be distributed after something like that. There are things that can be done to slightly diminish the possibility of ring deaths. But there's nothing that can be done to eliminate the possibility. This is part of the sport. It always has been. It always will be. That Patrick Day was the latest victim feels very random. And it seems like nobody in boxing has a bad word to say about him. He was universally loved by those who knew him. And it's a true tragedy. Um, Just to, to end my little monologue about this on a positive note, I read that Jermel Charlo is paying for Day's funeral. Um, that says something about Charlo and about the boxing community and, and the way it rallies in dark times. Uh, but other than that, this is just a terrible story to report. And unfortunately, we've had to cover several of these tragedies this year. Yeah, it's, it's been a rough year. That's the um, fourth in-ring fatality we've seen in 2019, I think. Mm. Um, it doesn't get any easier talking about it whenever it happens. Um, and condolences not just to... Day's family and close friends, but also to Charles Cornwall, his opponent on uh, on that night. He must be enduring the kind of agony that very few can imagine, um, even though he did nothing wrong. Um, you know, as our friend uh, Marcus Viegas tweeted in the immediate aftermath of the news, people aren't supposed to die doing sports, um, and they're not. But, you know, sort of follow on from what you were saying, it is a reminder of the singular uniqueness of boxing and of the risks um, its participants take each and every time they step in that ring. Um, I wish, I'm sure we all wish that such reminders were unnecessary, though. Yeah. Uh, so, look, there is no way to do anything but a somewhat clunky segue from that news item. It's going to be awkward. Um, but I'll try. Um, we spoke last week about Errol Spence's remarkable escape from a cartwheeling Ferrari in Dallas late on Thursday the 10th. Um, we deliberately tiptoed round a possible cause until the Dallas Police Department uh, made an announcement. And they have now stated that Spence will be charged with driving while intoxicated. Mr. Spence has been released from the hospital and will need to address those charges, said that statement. Um, look, there were a lot of prayers and statements of compassion offered up for Patrick Day following you know, his admission to hospital, um, and they were wholly merited. Uh, a couple of days earlier, in the immediate aftermath of the news of Spence's car accident, there were plenty of similar prayers and statements of compassion offered up for Spence, and understandably so in the immediate aftermath, um, as we wondered, you know, what had happened to him. Um, In hindsight, I don't think that they were merited. Um, Day died doing his job. Spence, it appears, imperiled not only his own life, but that of others through his own massively irresponsible choices. And here's the weird thing. I said last week, you know, you asked me, you know, what might be some kind of consequence from this? Would would this be a wake-up call? And I said... I hoped that Spence's take home from this, given that he somehow suffered only lacerations and facial injuries, wouldn't be. Look at me. I'm immortal. And I said that only in half jest. I didn't actually expect him to post on Instagram. No broken bones. I'm a savage. Um, He at least had the taste or awareness or someone around him did to take it down swiftly. But that rather suggests that the early indications are he's not taking on board the severity of his actions. Look, maybe given the benefit of the doubt, he was simply inadequately expressing an inevitable and justifiable sense of relief. Um, 
I certainly don't want to completely write the guy off. Um, but right now, the look is decidedly not good. Uh, at the very least, Errol Spence has some major image repair to do. And more importantly, it seems like he may very well have some soul searching to do, too. Yeah, we, we said last week it was at the very least reckless driving and listeners should have been able to infer from our tones that we were hearing it was likely <laughs> something more than that. People make mistakes. Young people do stupid things. Yep. Uh, although Errol Spence isn't even that young anymore. He turns 30 in January. Uh, there have been videos of him at fights at ringside in the past where he appeared drunk. Yeah. If he has a drinking problem, the people around him need to help him deal with it. It's time to get help and grow up. Uh, I, I don't know about um, image repair in the sense that people tend to forget things pretty yeah. quickly. If he gets back in the ring and looks good knocking someone out, fa boxing fans will pretty much erase this from their memories. But he definitely needs to look at what happened and learn from it. I get it. You're in your 20s. You have money. You buy a fast car. People do irresponsible things. It happens. Everyone deserves a second chance. Errol Spence is very lucky to have a second chance right now, and he needs to get his shit together. Simple as yeah. that. Um, I'm practicing my lectures for when my son discovers alcohol <laughs> and starts doing stupid shit. How'd I do there? That was pretty, I'm impressed. Okay. You, you scared me sober. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and that's uh, that, that takes that's a lot. Achievement. That's yeah. an achievement. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one more item here. So we can hopefully get all the bad and police blotter news out the way up top. A prosecutor has filed an assault charge against Artis Mack, the brother of Claressa Shields, for an attack on the trainer of Shields' opponent, or would have been opponent, Ivana Habazine, at the weigh-in for Shields and Habazine scheduled bout in Flint, Michigan two weeks ago. The charge is of one count of assault with intent to do great bodily harm less than murder in the attack on 68-year-old James Ali Bashir. This is our third straight week reporting on this story, so really, I don't think we need to add anything to that. Do you? I do not. I, uh, let's get that segment done and dusted and move on, shall we? Yes. All right. Um, so... We offered, you and I, our unofficial picks last week for Friday's light heavyweight clash between Artur Petrobyev and Alexander Wojtek. And it's actually, it's a pity they were unofficial because by my calculations, we would have each scored a gazillion points. <laughs> um, we called just about every aspect of it. Wojtek possibly being ahead on points after trying to keep Petrobyev at bay with combinations, but ultimately succumbing to the Russians' relentless aggression. Uh... Look, and that's exactly what happened in a thrilling contest. Uh, Vojtek went down onto the canvas six times in all, although only three, the last three, all in round 10, were official and legitimate knockdowns as Berbiev steadily beat the fight out of him to become the lineal light heavyweight champion with a 10th round stoppage on an ESPN broadcast contest at Temple University's Leah Chris Center in Philadelphia. Um, Eric, how did BetterBF pull out that win? Um, what did you think of that fight? And especially, what did you think of the fact that, remarkably, Vojtek was ahead on two scorecards prior to the 10th round? Oh, those scorecards. I'll get to them in a second. Uh, but first, okay. let's focus on the most important thing here, our exceptional predictions. <laughs> right. And more to the point, me putting money on it. Uh, I, nice. I, I bet on Better Biev at even money to win, uh, but then I placed two smaller bets uh, on Better Biev at 5-1 to one to win by decision. Uh, that was a loss, of course. And on Better Biev at 16-1 to one to win by knockout between rounds 10 and 12. 
Nice. Yeah. Uh, that, that made it a little extra thrilling, rooting for Gvajdik to get out of the ninth round and then to not last much longer after that. Um, in retrospect, though, better be of by decision at 5-1 to one wasn't a very good bet because if the last three rounds had looked like the first nine, better be of doing the better, more damaging work most of the time, but the rounds are competitive, he would have lost a decision that he had no business losing. Uh, it's funny, we just had the discussion in the mailbag last week right. about overusing the word robbery, uh, and then I went ahead and used it on Twitter when I saw those scorecards, uh, and maybe it was a slight exaggeration, since I can certainly see a path to Kvostik only being down by one point through nine rounds. Um, I, I could have seen that, but man... Two of those judges' scorecards just sucked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I only gave Gvozdik two rounds, the first and the fourth. Easy enough to give him one more, maybe two more. Could have been closer than I saw the fight. Okay, fine. Uh, two judges had Gvozdik ahead, and one of them had him up six rounds to three. That was John McKay. And here's what makes it even worse. When I saw the round-by-round breakdown, um, when the judges were told not to call a knockdown in the first round, thanks to an excellent use of replay mm-hmm. by Greg Serb and the Pennsylvania Commission, all three judges gave Better Biev the first round 10-9 when that was a fairly clear Gvozdik round if there's no knockdown. Um, so it's like they had all gone with the 10-8 score, and then when they were told to change it, right. they kept it 10-9, but not necessarily for the right guy. So these judges had Gvozdik ahead despite not giving him the opening round. Uh, John McKay, in particular, gave Better Biev round one, which he didn't deserve, in my opinion, round five and round nine. And that was it. Um, It didn't matter in the end. But to me, that is a robbery in progress. Uh, But enough about the scoring. It was a tremendous fight. Certainly very sloppy in spots, but drama throughout, not too many lulls, and... This was a fight that, to me, was largely won and lost on confidence. Uh, Better Biev believed Gvozdik couldn't hurt him, stuck to his game plan, going to the body, applying pressure by moving forward, countering when Gvozdik would let his hands go, just believing all along that he was going to catch up with this guy. And Gvozdik always looked like he was worried about what was coming back at him and unsure of himself, even as he got some business done in a lot of spots. It was like... He was never sure if he could make it 12 rounds against this opponent, and that nervousness helped gas him. He was fading by the end of the fourth round, I thought. To me, it felt inevitable. Uh, do you disagree? Is there anything Gvozdik could have done to get to a different result? Uh, and in general, did anything surprise you about the way the fight unfolded? So I guess the one thing that surprised me a bit, and, and it's actually on me, for arguably for being insufficiently attentive to Berbiev's previous bouts, was that not just was Berbiev the harder hitting, the heavier handed of the two, you know, and not just that he was relentless and suffocating. We expected all of that, but you could make a case that he was actually boxing better as well, mm. um, you know, uh, or at least he wasn't very clearly second. Um, right. You know, I, I guess on reflection, there's always been more to Berbiev than just his strength and relentlessness, and in the same way that Gennady Golovkin's pressure and power worked because of his footwork. Um, you know, I, I, what impressed me. And surprised me a bit was the way Berbiev, you know, was pretty calculating about what he was going to land. Like he decided pretty early on, you know, to really work that that body uh, uh, very well. And um, he also sort of worked out what Vojtek was trying to do and managed to neutralize him. So um, I guess in hindsight, the clues are probably already there in some of Berbiev's other fights that he's more rounded than maybe he's been given the credit for. As for whether there was anything Vojtek could do, I mean, strategically and tactically, 
I mean, it's fun to mock Teddy Atlas because it's easy and he deserves it often. But I actually thought, based on what we heard between rounds, he had a pretty good game plan this time. I thought he had a very good one. And he gave his fighter clear instructions and the right instructions. He was telling him to try and work from distance, bang the guy with right hands whenever he tried to come in to keep him off. Right. I mean, he was giving him all the correct instructions. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't matter how good your game plan is. Sometimes the other guy's just better than you. Um you know, and we did say that better BF might prove to be the exact wrong guy for Bavajdik, and so it seemed. I mean, I guess the other thing on the meta level that he could have done differently is, is to get back to your point. Perhaps gone in there thinking he could win the fight. It, it never felt like he did, did he? Um, right. I mean, he sometimes has that little look of nervousness and worry. We talked about this last week on his face, but it just, you know, the, uh, uh, I think it was Andre or Tim on the commentary were talking about how, in a strange sense, he was carrying that amateur loss in his mm. to better be in his head right and, and i don't know if that was true or not but yeah it did i mean you i i think that what you just said really put the finger on it that one guy went in there believing he could win and trying to win and maybe Vojtek was a little bit trying not to lose but you know tactically and strategically i don't know that there was much he could have done right yeah i would say it was better be have carried himself with the sense of i am going to win this fight Vojtek carried himself with the sense of boy i hope i can win this fight yeah you know yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So, as we mentioned, this makes better be of the lineal light heavyweight champion. Does it also make him the best light heavyweight in the world? Um, and so you also, I want to hit you with this. You asked me last week about the likelihood of Canelo meeting either one uh, if he beats Sergei Kovalev in a couple of weeks. And I gave one of my patented lengthy non-answers <laughs> um, that basically ended with me saying I figured he'd be more likely to want to face Wojtek than better be of. Um, obviously, we still need to see what happens between uh, Alvarez and Kovalev, but did anything you saw on Friday make you think the winner is any more or less likely to face off with better BF? Um, so the, the question of whether it makes him the best light heavyweight in the world, I tweeted after the fight simply better BF is now the lineal champ and the man to beat at 175 pounds. <laughs> he is. And the result of Canelo Kovalev won't change that in any way. The winner of Canelo Kovalev might command the biggest purses at 175 and be the man in that regard, but you can't call yourself the champ unless you go through Better Biev. Uh, Dmitry Bivol supposedly wants Better Biev. Okay, uh, I'd be more than happy with that matchup, mm. but the fight I really want to see is if Canelo beats Kovalev, my God, Canelo Better Biev is just a can't-miss, one of the best fights you can make in all of boxing. Uh, again, assuming Canelo beats Kovalev and looks good and looks strong at 175 pounds. Uh, I'm getting little tingly sensations all over just thinking about <laughs> Better Biev versus Canelo. Um, but I'd bet against it happening, at least in 2020. If Kovalev beats Canelo... Uh, we would most likely, I think, see a rematch there first, unless he, you know, knocks him flat out, blows him out. Canelo, Canelo doesn't want any part of a rematch. But uh, otherwise, you know, the, I'm sure that, uh, that those two would go back uh, in against each other if Canelo pulls out, or I'm sorry, if Kovalev pulls out the win. Right. If Canelo wins, he just has so many options in so many right. different divisions. Why would you submit yourself to that if you don't have to? Right. And and Canelo is a guy who has shown over and over again he's willing to take those fights he doesn't have to submit himself to. Better Biev, though, feels to me like a fight he'll want to think about a while yeah. and, and let the anticipation build, wait for some cracks to surface yeah. maybe before he jumps on that one. So much as I'd love to see it, uh, I don't think it's all that likely to happen, at least not in the next year or so. Yeah, he, he's going to take some beating, like in the sense that it's 
it's going to be extremely hard to find the right person and the right knight to, to beat Better BF. He, there is it, there's so much more to him than just the hard the hard hitting. There's the there's there's he is going to be a very tough out. Yeah, absolutely. He looked he looked fantastic in this fight against Kvajdik. And uh, yep, uh, one of those guys uh, at this point, you'd have to favor him over over anyone else in the division. Yep. All right, so that was one top-notch fight in my home state of Pennsylvania that I could have attended but chose not to because I'm lazy and spoiled. Uh, <laughs> this Saturday sees more boxing action from, from Pennsylvania that I could attend but won't for assorted reasons, some legitimate, some based on simple laziness, as Showtime Boxing returns with a triple header from the Santander Arena in Reading. The broadcast begins at 9 p.m. Eastern time. We'll touch on the two undercard fights shortly. But first, let's focus in on the main event, which brings us junior middleweight action. Erickson Hammerlubin, 21-1 with 16 knockouts, takes on Nathaniel Nate the Great Gallimore, who is 21-3-1 with 17 knockouts uh, over 10 rounds. Lubin was originally scheduled to take on Terrell Gachet until Gachet pulled out due to injury a few weeks ago. Lubin's trainer, Kevin Cunningham, insists Gallimore is actually a much more dangerous opponent. Uh, is he, do you think? Uh, and if so, why? Uh, what, what kind of different challenges does he present to those of Gachet? Well, he certainly may well prove to be a more interesting opponent, you know, for the for those of us who are watching. Um, you know, as talented as Gaucher is, he isn't always the most stimulating boxer to watch. Um, whereas Gallimore, at least in the right circumstances... Um, can generally be relied on to bring it. Uh, he's a very different kind kind of opponent, um, and that's where the challenge really lies for Lubin. You know, if you spend some time preparing for a highly skillful boxer, and now suddenly you're faced with someone who's much, much more of a fighter, then that's, you know, obviously suboptimal. Uh, you know, the big danger that Gallimore brings is he can really punch. When he gets into a situation where he's in the pocket, he really torques his body into punches, and, and he's got pretty good fast hands. Um, the likelihood of this matchup at some point devolving into a brawl is higher with Gallimore than with Gaucher. And the attendant risk obviously as a consequence is greater. But um, as a result, you know, maybe Lubin wouldn't have been the better, smoother boxer up against Gaucher, but he, but he probably is um, uh, up against Gallimore. Um, you know, Gallimore looked good and strong at times in, in a hard fought Majority decision loss to uh, Julian J. Rock Williams. But then he also looked diffident and confused in his subsequent outing, which was also a loss to Patrick Teixeira. He seemed unable to get off against Teixeira's southpaw boxing and movement. Um, so in some ways, it is more dangerous for Lubin, simply because there's the danger of it turning into a brawl and, and Gallimore can hit. In some ways, it might be a little bit easier in that he probably has the opportunity to outbox his opponent. But I do think the prospect of it being at some point exciting for us, it's probably higher. Agree. All right. Uh, as for Lubin, uh, he's on a stretch of three wins since suffering his lone defeat, a first-round knockout to Jamel Charlo in October 2017. Um, we often say that first-round stoppages can be anomalies, that anyone could get caught early before the fight has really gotten going. Um, based on what we've seen of Lubin since that loss, and indeed of what we saw beforehand, do you think what happened against Charlo was indeed just one of those things? Do you think he's still, notwithstanding that, um, and obviously, you know, dependent on what happens on, on Saturday, does he nonetheless, despite that loss, belong in the mix with, with Charlo, with Julian Williams, with Jarrett Hurd, those guys? Uh, not until he proves himself at that level, no. I, ah. I, I think we can't just discount 
a first round knockout loss and and say fluke and and continue to place right. him on the same plane as the guy who knocked him out. Um, I looked up the the transnational boxing rankings in this division. The top five, according to them, are Williams, Hurd. Tony Harrison, Charlo, and Arislandi Lara. Uh, and then you have Brian Castaño, Jaime Munguia. It's around there that you can start to consider ranking Lubin. He might prove to have the talent to be the number one guy, and we'll ultimately look back on the Charlo loss as a fluke. But at this point, he's a borderline top 10 guy at 154 pounds who has obvious talent. And needs to prove he belongs with those guys in the top five. And again, I wouldn't be surprised if he indeed proves he does. But there are questions about his chin. Um, I can't call that loss to Charlo Fluky until I see Lubin take punches successfully against a world-class puncher. That said, I've liked what I've seen of Lubin since the loss. Uh, KO4, Silverio Ortiz. KO3, Ishe Smith. KO4, Zachariah Atu. The confidence seems to be intact. The power is clearly still intact. All signs are encouraging. And now here comes Gallimore, a stiffer test, I think, than those previous three. Uh, How stiff a test exactly? Uh, Well, let's make some predictions. Uh, And before we do that, a reminder that you too can make your own picks and put yourself in the running for cash and prizes. Just go to DraftKings.com slash Showtime. And for all three bouts on this card, you pick a winner, a method of victory, If you're picking a knockout, you specify a range of rounds, and if you run the table, you can win your share of $5,000 and a Showtime swag bag. And there's also a season-long grand prize of a trip to every 2020 Showtime Championship boxing event. Kieran, do you want to guess what place I'm in out of tens of thousands in the season-long competition right now? Well, you were doing pretty well. I'm going to say 786th. Oh, you underestimate me, Kieran. Do I now? 22nd. You lie. I do not. You can go on there and look well, it up. I'll be. <laughs> I might just be a boxing es- expert after all. What do you know? Um, yeah, you... For the record, I have no use for the grand prize of going to every Showtime Championship boxing event. <laughs> so if I should somehow win this thing, which I still have a long way to go, but I'm pledging right now that we'll come up with something with our bosses at Showtime to raffle the grand prize off to a listener uh, if I should happen to win it. But barring that, Barring me winning it all and gifting it to you, the only way to win is to play. <laughs> uh, so go to DraftKings.com Showtime and get your picks in. Uh, all right, so time for our predictions. Uh, you went first last time, uh, but that was our unofficial pick for Better Be Have Gvozdik. Uh, and because it was an unofficial, our gazillion points apiece don't count. And I still lead you by 59 to 53, not a gazillion and 59 to a gazillion <laughs> and 53. Uh, the last official pick we made for Shields Habazine, a fight for which we uh, both earned zero points because it didn't happen, uh, I picked first. So with all that said and done, Kieran, I'm pretty sure this time it's your turn to pick first. So what is your prediction for Lubin Gallimore? So Gallimore, you know, like I sort of indicated, he's a bit of a wild card. Uh, it's uncertain how, you know, how he'll perform. Like I said, he looks fun and exciting, even though he lost quite clearly to J-Rock. Um, but then he looked underwhelming against Patrick Teixeira. Uh, look, in theory, at least, look, Lubin is the better fighter here. I, he's, you know, he's more well-rounded, I think. I think he is probably uh, on a different class, although not massively so. Um, like I said, there is a risk here, you know, especially if, if they end up trading in the trenches, but nobody in boxing probably is likely more aware than Lubin of the risk of getting caught by a random punch. So, um, you know, I think Lubin might fight, he'll show the appropriate degree of respect and caution, but, 
you know, he, he won't be afraid to get stuck in there if need be. So I picture Lubin looking to control it a little bit from distance early. Gallimore wanting to close the gap and go to war. And on occasions, they will go to war. Um, you know, and when that happens, Gallimore may well win a couple battles. And I think what'll be interesting, it'll be a bit more interesting to see what happens when Gallimore checks Lubin's chin than the other way around. Um, but overall, I think Lubin will win that trench warfare as well. Um, I think he'll probably win from the outside and the inside. Lubin starts out boxing. Gallimore manages to make it closer in the middle rounds. It gets pretty exciting in the middle rounds. Lubin maybe takes control again over the final couple. Uh, he's tough, Gallimore. He's been in with some really good guys, and um, he'll last the distance here. But ultimately, I think this will be a unanimous decision win for Ericsson Lubin. All right. Well, we have uh, an opportunity here for you to catch up a little bit. Uh, I, I definitely think Gallimore is the toughest opponent on Lubin's comeback tour. Um, I, 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 the question that I asked you about whether he's tougher than Gachet would have been, uh, I think you mm. broke it down well, that it's really a style thing, and I'm not quite sure if, if he's a harder guy to beat or an easier guy to beat, but I do feel like there isn't a huge gap between Gachet and, and Gallimore in terms of the challenge overall here for Lubin. Gallimore knows what he's doing in there. Um, he's a long, lean guy. He can jab and box, but as you noted, he can also really pop. He's mostly lost when he stepped up, but he's lost close over the distance. Even against J-Rock Williams, he didn't get blown away. I think an upset is possible here, uh, but it isn't the high percentage pick. Lubin is quicker, more explosive, able to do more things offensively, and is also, I think, better defensively. Uh, watching back tape of Gallimore, too often I, I saw him in various fights stopping along the ropes and leaning back and not really yeah. moving his head and getting caught. Um so my pick is Lubin, and despite Gallimore never having been stopped, it's the first time for everything. My gut is telling me Lubin is going to really take charge at some point, hurt Gallimore, and become the first to knock him out. I'm going Erickson Lubin, KO8. All right. Okay. We shall see. Um, as noted, this is a triple header. Uh, the Comains, he's a familiar face in the form of Robert Easter Jr., who, after starting his career 21-0, said something of a bump in the road. Um, we last saw him in action in a deeply forgettable draw against Francis Barthelme. And now he goes up against former Adrian Bronner, Sean Porter, and Danny Garcia victim, Adrian Granados at 140 pounds. Uh, Eric, what's the skinny on this one? The skinny is that Granados has always been a tough out until his last yep. fight when Danny Garcia dominated him, knocked him down three times, and became the first to stop Granados. He's 30 years old. This is the fight where we learn if he's still a tough out or not. Uh, Easter really needs to do something to erase the memory of the yeah. Barthelemy fight. I can't even remember at this point how I scored it and who I felt deserved to win, if anybody. Um, I was just glad it was over with, and I yeah. uh, do not plan to revisit it uh, leading up to, to this fight. Um, this will certainly be a more comfortable style matchup for him. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if he's flat... And if the Garcia fight wasn't a sign of things to come for Granados, if it was just that Garcia was that good and and that wrong of a style for Granados, then this has some upset potential. So I'm looking forward to this one. And in the opener, we talked about this fight on last week's pod because it was just added to the broadcast. Mm -hmm. It's undefeated heavyweight prospect F.A. Ajagba, 11-0 with nine KOs, going up against Jack Mulawai, who is 7-1-1 with three KOs. Uh, Kieran, last time out, we saw Ajagba taken 10 rounds for the first time. That was on the undercard of the Manny Pacquiao-Keith Thurman pay-per-view. 
Are you expecting him to get back to his KO ways against Mulawai? Ah, um, so I was going to say quite possibly, and I was going to get into a bit of a breakdown of Mulawai and how good he is or isn't and what a Jagba can do. But um, what you probably don't realize is that I'm so bored when we record this podcast that I'm constantly checking my email. <laughs> and we are just we actually just got an email uh from uh, our boss at showtime saying that fa jagba who was on this card as a replacement is himself out so <laughs> wow okay yeah so that's, okay. that's some uh, interesting uh, e- timing to re- to receive the email there but uh yeah so basically this card now bears absolutely no relation to what was originally planned um uh, i think robert easter jr is the only guy who was always supposed to be on it uh so well, that ends that question, really. So I don't know. So we'll, we're assuming it's still going to be a triple header. We have no reason to assume otherwise. But here you go, folks. Live uh, late-breaking <laughs> action. Uh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm I am not expecting FA Jagba to uh, return to his knockout ways on Saturday. So there you go. That's my answer. <laughs> yes, I guess you'll be right. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the email now, too. I was not checking my email because I am you 100% actually focus on focused and attentive. Is. Yes. Uh, but now that I'm looking at it, yeah, all we're seeing is a Jogba is out without further details. So whether it is a doubleheader or tripleheader, whether um, what, what for what reason he's out, uh, unknown at this time. But yeah, probably no sense going into great detail about exactly how that fight's going to play out since it, it seems at least that this, much we know this, it's off. This was the greatest scouting report I had ever done. I had uh, <laughs> written up a 25,000 word dossier on, uh, on, on Mulawawi. It was, it was, I was really impressed. I spent, I spent days on that. I spent days on it. I'm really, really disappointed about that. But there you go. Maybe, maybe they'll reschedule Now no one will ever know. Can, no, you might be able to use it somewhere down the road. If they oh no, I'm shredding it now. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, there are a couple of other fight cards to note next weekend. Um, ESPN Plus, on Saturday, uh, Shakur Stevenson takes on Joet Gonzalez in Reno, Nevada for a vacant featherweight belt. Uh, also on that card, Josh Gria takes on Antonio Nieves over 10 rounds of bantamweight action. And Michaela Mayer meets Alejandra Soledad Zamora over 10 rounds at junior lightweight. But the big matchup of the weekend, though, is on zone uh, after much back and forth of legal issues and deals being made and falling through and then being made again. Uh, undefeated 140-pounders Josh Taylor and Regis Progre meet in the final of the World Boxing Super Series at the O2 Arena in London. Um, Eric, uh, for me, this is a lot like Better Be a Vojdik in the sense that it's a really hard fight to call. Uh, a classic case of someone's O having to go, unless, of course, um, neither person's O goes and just has a hyphen and a one uh, after it because it's a draw or there's a parenthetical one nc uh in both cases but not assuming <laughs> you, not might, have, you might have you might have explained that yeah, yeah right this is why i never got a job as a ring announcer um <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> um are you having as hard a time predicting this one as i am uh and also do you think the winner has a legitimate case to make as the number one guy in the division so it sounds like you're having a slightly harder time with this than I am, but only slightly. Um, whereas last week, the odds makers had Gvozdik as the slight favorite, but I leaned better Biev. This time, Progre is a minus 200 favorite, Taylor a plus 150 underdog. And that feels exactly right to me. Um, they said they said both sides, sides of the odds were, I don't have any interest in betting either side. So I guess they did a good job. Um, 
ProGrade to me seems a little quicker, a little sharper, a little more versatile. Uh, this is a really competitive fight on paper, but ProGrade is that guy where the talent pops more. Uh, I do worry about his chances of winning the decision if it's close, but I still make him the favorite. As to whether the winner will be the number one guy, well, Mikey Garcia is the number one guy if he's a 140-pounder, but I have no idea if he'll fight in this division again. But right. Gar- Garcia is recognized by the Transnational Boxing Rankings Board as the champion. I'd say the pro-grade Taylor winner becomes number one with an asterisk pending Garcia's decision on whether he's a welterweight or a junior welterweight. And of course, Jose Ramirez is not far behind. But this is a great fight for providing some clarity at the top of the division, uh, assuming somebody's O goes. Uh, we don't get a, <laughs> a, a draw, uh, which, uh, by the way, 22 to 1 odds on the draw here. Kind of tempting. Interesting. Uh, or, or you know, it also, we would not get much clarity if we have a bad decision, a fight where most people think one guy won and the other guy gets it. So if there is a clear winner, yes, I think that person uh, is number one with that asterisk because of Mikey Garcia. Um, anyway, a solid undercard on this show. Uh, we touched briefly last week on the reconstituted co-main, Derek Chisora versus David Price. Anything else on the card leap out at you? Um, well, we talked a bit about some of it. It's, it's a fun card. Uh, we talked last week about uh, the heavyweight action in the co-main. Yeah. Um, Derek Chisora is always good for, uh, uh, you know, to, to watch. Um, as we mentioned last week, nothing less than a KO win is going to do for him against late replacement David Price, who's going to be looking to extend his surprising mini run of, of success recently. Uh, Ricky Burns and Lee Selby, pair of veterans who are always good for, uh, reliable for a good performance. But I also really want to see more of the very talented young cruiserweight Lawrence Oakley, um, who's also fighting on that card. He, you know, he's, I think he's 13 and 0 or something now at this stage with 10 KOs. Um, he's already had a couple of big and meaningful fights. He's already main evented. Um, he looks like he may be a real one for the future and he'll be fighting for the European strap on that card. So I'm looking forward to that. And he's tremendously useful for whenever he fights posting a Ned Flanders Oakley Dokley gif. <laughs> There you go. Yes. I hadn't even thought of that, and I'm a bit ashamed of myself for that. You should be. Right? You're Damn. slipping, Karen. Evidently. Evidently. All right. We'll close with some news items. And uh, as we've dispensed with our bad news segment already, let's just focus on some fight announcements. Uh, we begin close to home um, on our network on November 15th. Showbox The New Generation returns with six fighters with a combined record of 65-1. and one all facing the toughest tests of their young careers in a triple header from the Winner Vegas Casino in Sloan, Iowa. Uh, undefeated welterweight prospect Eric Vega Ortiz of Tijuana will face a 2016 Olympian and decorated amateur Alberto Palmetto, who's the one loser on the card, 12-1 uh, and one with eight KOs from Argentina. Uh, and that's a 10-round main event. Uh, Marcus Escaduro, uh, also of Argentina, will take on Houston's Joseph George in the 10-round light heavyweight co-feature. And the telecast will open with Uruguayan Amilcar Vidal, who will fight for the first time in the U.S. when he meets Zach Prieto of El Paso, Texas, in an eight-round middleweight contest. Uh, roughly two weeks later, on November 30th, former featherweight titleist Oscar Valdez and Carl Frampton, another former felt, uh, featherweight titleist, they make their 130-pound debuts in separate bouts from the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas on ESPN+. One of my favorite venues, that. Um, presumably looking to set themselves up for a meeting next year. Uh, so... Two cards there featuring fighters at very different stages of their careers. Uh, anything you're particularly looking forward to there? 
Well, pretty much a classic showbox card, and I like how it's spread yep. across three classic divisions, welterweight, middleweight, and light heavyweight. Uh, I can't say I know much about these prospects yet, and uh, which, if any, have serious potential. But by the time we preview the card in depth, I promise to know more. Uh, as for Valdez and Frampton, that's a very strong fight when the two of them get around to facing each other. I'm not sure how much I care about these interim fights against Andres Gutierrez and Tyler McCreary, respectively. Valdez is kind of frustrating, isn't he? Uh, he, he? He gets a meaningful win, gets you excited about him, and then just faces a series of fringe opponents. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that the people around him are wasting his prime, but they're certainly not making the most of his prime. But if Frampton awaits early next year, that's the kind of fight he needs. I, I suppose I can put up with one more tune-up on the way there, and hopefully no hotel lobby lamps or sculptures or whatever fall on right. Frampton exactly. in the meantime. Uh, one other announced card to note on December 14th, Terence Crawford makes his ring return, defending his welterweight belts against mandatory challenger Agigis Mean Machine Kavaliowskis, uh, who I shall henceforth refer to simply as Mean Machine. Uh, <laughs> that's atop a triple header on ESPN from Madison Square Garden. It is always great to see Crawford, uh, who has been forced to kick his heels while the likes of Manny Pacquiao, Keith Thurman, Sean Porter, and Errol Spence have been facing each other. Uh, it's always great to see Crawford in action, but even though we get to see a top two pound for pounder in the ring, uh, that may not be the most enticing bout of the night. I know there's at least one undercard bout that has your attention, Karen. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, look, Crawford is the best human on earth at boxing, but um, <laughs> we haven't seen him in action since he outclassed Amir Khan back in April. Um, I imagine that's probably been frustrating from him. And Kavlioskis is an opponent isn't going to get a lot of pulses racing, um, even though he is a solid fighter. And I think, you know, part of the reason why he's not going to get much of you know people's excitement is in his last outing he drew with uh ray robinson not you know the original ray robinson obviously because that would be an incredibly bad performance but <laughs> um but that was like the first smudge on his record and it feels weird you know when somebody gets a title shot um you know on the basis of not getting a win that was a a draw there but um but yeah it's the best human on the planet in action and that's something uh in the opener we hopefully finally get to see Mickey Conlon looking to get revenge on Vladimir Nikitin, who scored the controversial win over him at the 2016 Olympics. It's a matchup that was made and then postponed, um, but it's now finally happening and obviously has the great storyline that almost writes itself. But the fight that really has me buffing up my happy is the, uh, <laughs> is, is, is the co-main Tiafimo Lopez against Richard Comey. Um, this is the fight. That will tell us if Teofimo Lopez really is world class, which I think he is. But this is, you know, by far uh, the toughest test for him. Comey, I mean, it's, without sitting down and really thinking about it, you can make a case that this isn't this is an even fight. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to this. Um, and of course, we'll look at it and at the whole card in more depth closer to the time. Yes, Hafiz buffed all around the boxing uh, universe for, for this That's one. Right. Hafiz had full mast, if I may say. Well, it's near the end of the year, so it's probably going to be a fully. <laughs> all right. This, this, yeah. this can't lead anywhere good if we keep trying to figure out ways to say this. I think, uh, I think you'd best yeah, wrap it up. We probably better had. All right, that'll do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, we will be back next week, possibly with a guest, possibly without. I've just decided to stop making promises about that or even dropping hints about it now. Well, after that hint, um, <laughs> after a couple of weeks of not following through. Uh, uh, but we will look back on uh, Lubin Gallimore and on Progress Taylor. And we will spend time 
dissecting the mouthwatering November 2nd light heavyweight clash between Canelo Alvarez and Sergei Kovalev. Until then, thanks for listening.